Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles still on the welcome table. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians with a series of studies where we're currently learning from Paul's praise to God in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And in part 2 today, we're going to be studying verses 4 through 6. So we're, we're making our way through. Making our way downtown. Making our way through the wood. Just stop it, Jared. But we're going to read verses 3 through 14 to start. We're going to actually do that each time in these studies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't even get me started. Verse 3. Get your reading glasses on if you need to. Let's do it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him." In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, verse 13, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I opened up our time with this quote last week, but I just want want us to consider this again, this introduction that Pastor H.B. Charles, Charles Jr. said here. He said, In the original Greek text, these 12 verses comprise only one sentence, even though no English versions translate it that way, which is helpful for us, right? In some remarkable way, this complex passage was one simple exclamation of praise in Paul's mind, and this high praise is offered to Almighty God for the sovereign grace by which he gives sinful people a new position in Christ. He says, verses 4 through 6, praise God the Father for choosing us for salvation. Verses 7 through 12, praise God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for purchasing our salvation with his own lifeblood. And verses 13 and 14, praise God the Holy Spirit for sealing 
our salvation. This passage is a careful explanation of the God-centered, God-exalting nature of the Christian message of salvation. But this explanation begins with a celebration. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As I said last week, the blessings that Paul details for us in verses 3 through 14 are not meant to trip us up, not meant to cause us to get puffed up in pride, not meant to drive us to separate from one another into different theological factions or denominations or bring division and strife and disunity in the church. None of that. Instead, all of the deep theological doctrinal truths that are found in these verses should lead us to do the same thing that it led Paul to do, which is to praise and worship our God, to rejoice in who he is and what he's done for us and in us and what he said to us and about us. And if our takeaway as we study this section of verses isn't primarily us wanting to bless Praise, worship the Lord, be in awe of our Lord. We are missing the point of why these verses are here for us as saints. Saints, those who through faith in Jesus are now in Christ. But as we begin this section of Paul's, uh, but as we began, sorry, this section of Paul's letter last week, we looked at the importance of verse 3 that the foundation that it sets for the verses to follow. And, and we learn some, uh, something crucial from, from Paul's praise to God, which is that the Father has blessed us. And now in verses 4 through 6, we're going to see some specific ways that God the Father has blessed us. These blessings seen in us being chosen in verse 4, being adopted in verse 5, and being accepted in verse 6. And so, with all that in mind, let's get into it and read verses 3 and 4. Again, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Again, Paul's use of the word blessed to begin verse 3 makes it clear that the context for all the deep and rich doctrine that we find in verses 3 through 14 is not Paul seeking to make an argument or to cause people to divide over theological differences, but that th- these things are really just Paul praising God for all that he's done for us. And one of the things that God the Father has done for us, one of the ways he's blessed us out of the many ways, as we see in verse 4, is that he has chosen us. And in that choosing, we see the when and the why. The, the when of his choosing, we're told, is before the foundation of the world. The, the why of his choosing, 
being that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What Paul lists here as a blessing from the Father that he chose us is known as the doctrine of election. Not like presidential election, but a really great kind of election. Now, I've, I've touched on, <laughs> not that. We don't put our hope in that one. We do in this other one. Now, I, I've touched on this subject of election in the past, but it's been a while. And, and since this subject has been a dividing point in the church for many over the centuries, and because there has been uh, much confusion when it comes to the doctrine of election, I, I want us to have a, my goal, my heart here this morning that we would have a biblically balanced perspective of this and also to clarify our stance here at Calvary Chapel Walnut Creek on these things. Now, as much as I wish this wasn't true, the subject of God's election, his choosing, oftentimes seems to bring up some sort of debate between believers. The often asked question is, Did God choose us, or did we choose him? The answer is yes. Moving on. We're going to get into verse 5 now. (laughs) The answer is yes. Let's start with the easy one. Let's start with the, the quick answer. Now, There are some that say, since we're chosen by God to obtain salvation, that we have no choice or responsibility in choosing him, which therefore means then that there are those that are chosen by God to not have salvation, to be really eternally condemned to hell. And there are some who take the opposite extreme of this stance. Oftentimes we find in, uh, we find these sorts of stances within uh, two groups that are often kind of rise to the top. We know one as Calvinists and one as Arminianists. It, it's kind of an interesting thing. I was thinking about this, how oftentimes when someone in Christendom throughout church history has taken some sort of extreme stance on something, that there are other people who just put their arms up and want to go to the, the complete opposite extreme. So in more, recent, in more recent church history, we see this with Pentecostalism. There's an extreme on one end of when it comes to the present work and giftings of the Spirit. And, and because of the Pentecostalism, we find cessationism. On the other hand, we're, we're so repulsed by what's going on over here that freaks us out so much that we swing over here and go, no way, this Holy Spirit's not working not giving, not, not working, but not working in the same way today as in the early church, not presently still giving these sorts of gifts that he did in the early church. And, and I believe in this uh, area of election, we've seen these two groups swing to an extreme, one taking a very extreme stance, and then the other in the Arminianist group taking the other extreme. And I just want to say, if you've never heard of either of these groups, God bless you. God bless bless you seriously um there are great people in both camps this is not a diss of 
either. This isn't to put them down, to say that they're not godly, to say that there's not a, a love for the Lord, any of that. But what's come out of what's come out of these sort of camps, if you will, has often brought about division in the big C church, often become a source of pride in many believers' lives towards others who don't hold the same view as them. And, and really, sadly, this has been going on for far too long. I, and we here at Calvary Chapel, don't hold to either viewpoint, neither Calvinism nor Arminianism. Nor do we see a distinction being made in Scripture. Both camps' viewpoints, if we wanted to kind of boil it down, are really the conclusions and maybe the well-meaning conclusions of, of men who didn't allow Scripture to speak for itself. Letting God's Word be God's Word, but instead trying to reconcile things that seem to be seem to be in opposition to each other from a human perspective. As we look at Scripture, and if we were to look at it without any sort of bias, and that's the hard part because we bring our biases with us to the table when we come to God's Word. If we left our biases behind and we, looked at, we just looked at Scripture, we would come to this conclusion. Clearly, God is chosen. He's chosen. Can't get around that. He knows who will choose him, but clearly God has also given humans the free will, the opportunity to choose to believe him and receive his free gift of salvation. There should be no division. Both are biblical and are not to be separated from each other. Check out what Bible commentator Warren Wearsby said about verse 4. He wrote, that salvation begins with God and not with man, all Christians will agree, we, or maybe we should say should agree. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, John 15, verse 16. The lost sinner left to his own ways does not seek God, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. God in his love seeks the sinner, Luke 19, verse 10. He says, note that God chose us even before he created the universe so that our salvation is wholly of his grace and not on the basis of anything we ourselves have done. He chose us in Christ, not in ourselves. And he chose us for a purpose, to be holy and without blame. In the Bible, election is always unto something. It is a privilege that carries a great responsibility. Does the sinner respond to God's grace against his own will? No, he responds because God's grace makes him willing to respond. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this life. He says both are taught in the Bible. John 6 verse 37, both are true and both are are essential. Here's the deal. God's word speaks of both things and never in opposition or in conflict to the other, and yet they both exist. 
God has sovereignly chosen. He's clearly the initiator of our salvation. Because if it was before the world began, before the founding of the world, before God spoke everything into existence, he's looking at us from, a, from eternity past and going, like Pokemon, I choose you! Right? No, no Pokemon? No Pokemon people in here? I don't play Pokemon, I'm just saying. It's a thing. He's sovereignly chosen. He's the initiator of salvation. And yet he's given us, as mankind, a responsibility to respond to the message of the gospel of Jesus and choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. We don't need a verse to explicitly say, you've got to choose God. When we think of God's plea for repentance in the New Testament even, if we, even if we just looked at the word repentance, he's not saying repent if you're chosen. He's saying repent, turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. Choose God instead of choosing sin. When Jesus in John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He didn't say that whoever is chosen would believe in him. He said, whoever, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In 1 Peter chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, when Peter says that God's not, uh, not slack regarding his promises, but he's long-suffering, willing that no, none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God is not being cruel there. He's not choosing for some to be eternally condemned. There's no choice. They've got no choice. But then he's going, but you should choose me. How cruel would that be? Hey, repent, but you can't. I'm not letting you. No, the plea is for whoever. Why? Because God's desire is that all, all would come into his kingdom, that all would repent, all would find salvation in Jesus Christ and be brought into his family. And yet at the same time, God's chosen. And, and in our minds, we're just going, no, that can't be right. That can't be right because I want to come to a conclusion that, that I can grab a hold of firmly in my mind and just go like, no, I've got it. I figured it out. This is the thing. And you know what? God's word doesn't let us do that. It doesn't give us the freedom to exclude one because this other one makes more sense to me. It's kind of like last week when we're going, like, what, how do we know if we've been blessed? Well, we know it because God said it, right? Our confidence is in what God has said. So when God has said he's chosen, when he said that whoever believes would not perish, then we go, God, if you said it, I might not fully understand it, but I'm going to take you at your word. Guys, the problem lies in our finite and limited understanding, in our human minds not being able to comprehend and reconcile the two. God is infinite. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. We're not God, nor will we ever be able to completely figure him out. 
even the brilliant Apostle Paul could not wrap his mind around the omniscience of God as he wrote about God's future plan to save Israel and the need for the Jewish people to choose to believe in Jesus as their Messiah in Romans chapters 9 through 11, which left Paul at the end of a a lengthy teaching not building a case for what might later be known as Calvinism, nor building a case for what might later be known as Arminianism, neither of which were his conclusion. His only conclusion was to worship God in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Check out what he wrote after talking about all of these things that are just so hard for us to understand. He says that, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul's conclusion was not Calvinism. It was not Arminianism. His conclusion was doxology. It was worship. It was praise to God. He couldn't figure God out, so he just praised God. And in the body of Christ, we need a lot more doxology and a lot less division. Amen? The truth of God's election, his choosing of people is not meant to cause strife, but to bring comfort, to bring encouragement, to to bring joy, knowing that God wanted us, that he's committed to us. Understand that the election, the choosing of God is rooted in the love and desire of God for every single one of us. He's chosen us Because he loves us and he wants to have a relationship with us. Before the foundation of the world, before he ever spoke everything into existence, this is going to blow your mind because it blows mind. Before all of that, he was thinking about you and me. His mind was on you and me. And from that place in eternity past, before the world was ever formed, the Father wanted us for himself. How many people struggle in life and throughout their childhood and they grow up and it just carries with them this feeling of not being wanted? And yet we couldn't be more wanted we couldn't be more wanted when we consider this amazing doctrine of election and in his choosing we see in verse 4 we have a purpose and a responsibility that we should be holy holy set apart devoted consecrated that we should be without blame it's a word that be would be used about a sacrificial animal that was without spot, without fault, without blemish. 
notice, before him in love. And that word love is the word agape. We see this reinforced in Peter's introduction in his first letter in 1 Peter 1-2, where after addressing his audience, uh, he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's almost like Peter condenses. He, he like, almost sounds like the same thought process that Paul has here, where Paul is going to reference each person of the, of the triune Godhead. Peter, in his opening letter, he references the Father, the, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, and the work that they, they, they have in our lives. But, but in that, even in what Peter wrote, we see that in the Father's election of us, that the Holy Spirit is also working his sanctifying work in our lives, making us holy and without blame before him in love. He's not saying, I chose you, now be holy, now be without blame, you figure it out. And we're like, oh, crud. What do I, how, do, how do I do that? Because I still struggle. I still have this sin nature that's kind of, it's there. It's fighting against what the Spirit of God is desiring in my life. And, but that is election. The Spirit of God is coming alongside and he's working inside of us to sanctify, to bring the desire of God for us about. That we would be a people in this world that are holy that are without blame, that are walking and and just standing in that position of agape love. Praise God that in his choosing us, he's also working on us. But look at verse five. Paul goes on to write, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So first election, now the doctrine of predestination. Paul, what are you doing to us? No? Okay. They're like, no, it's all good, Jared. We're good. We're fine. Again, he's not trying to trip us up, trip us out, get us worked up, get us freaked out. No, Paul, from a place of worship, he's praising the Father for the blessings that we have from him. So let's try to demystify this often mystifying doctrine, predestination. I've referenced him once here, but Warren Beersby said this about predestination. He wrote, Here we meet that misunderstood word, predestination. This word, as it is used in the Bible, refers primarily to what God does for saved people. Nowhere in the Bible are we taught that people are predestined to hell because this word refers only to God's people. The word simply means to ordain beforehand, to predetermine. Election seems to refer to people, while predestination refers to purposes. The events connected with the crucifixion of Christ were predestined, Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28. 
God has predestined our adoption, as we see here in Ephesians 1.5, and our conformity to Christ, Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, as well as our future inheritance, as we'll see in Ephesians 1, verse 11. See, God the Father, in his election, his infinite wisdom, predestined us, determined beforehand, notice, to adopt us as sons and daughters by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You know, what an amazing thing that he didn't predestine us to be slaves in his house. Like, well, we made it into the house, but there's really no relationship here. I'm just a servant among other servants. There's no familial dynamic, no familial love, no familial acceptance. No, he predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters in his house, in his family, in such a way that through this method of adoption, we've been given all the privileges, all the responsibilities of sonship. And this is an important dynamic here because when we think about being made children of God, that doesn't hinge on this aspect of adoption because when we think about Uh, salvation, regeneration, being born again by the Spirit of God. What happens? We are born again into a new family. We, at that moment, are made children of God. But in a sense, if we wanted to put it that way, if we stayed in, in God's eyes just as children, we wouldn't have access to all the inheritance. Right? Kids... At two years old, 10 years old, even 16 years old, don't, are not you know, heirs in the same sense that a, a, a son or daughter at 18 years old, when they've now been given full access to all the rights and privileges and the inheritance as a child in the family would, there's, there's this, this tandem here. He's brought us through regeneration. He's made us born again into his family, and then in that in that same way, as God has done that, he's going, but now I've, I've adopted you so that you get all the rights, all the privileges, all the inheritance. It's all yours now. All yours now in Christ. Where scripture would tell us that we are joint heirs with Christ. And this is just true. I mean, we could just follow this trail down. But when you think about an inheritance, you get an inheritance because someone died, right? Someone died. So we've been brought into this place where we get an inheritance. How did that happen? Well, Jesus died so that we could be brought into this place of, of partaking of this inheritance, becoming heirs. And yet he rose again, and we're still, we still get the inheritance. He didn't go, well, I rose, so I'm keeping it for me. It's all mine. It's all me. It's mine. Don't touch it. No, he's like, hey, 
the moment that I died and I brought you in through salvation, you're, you now have full access to all of this. All that's mine is now yours. We've been given all the privileges, all the responsibilities of sonship. And the father accomplished that adoption, notice, by the work of Jesus Christ. I like what William McDonald, Bible commentator, said about verse 5. He wrote, the, the second spiritual blessing from the treasury of God's grace is predestination or foreordination. Though somewhat related to election, it is not the same. Election pictures God's choice of people to salvation. But predestination is an advance on this. It means that God determined ahead of time that all who would be saved would also be adopted into his family as sons. He could have saved us without making us his sons, but he chose to do both. Many translations link the last two words of verse 4 with verse 5 as follows. In love, having predestined us. This reminds us of the unique affection that prompted God to deal with us so graciously. And he went on to say, our adoption as sons is by Jesus Christ. God could never have brought us into this position of nearness and dearness to himself as long as we were in our sins. So the Lord Jesus came to earth, and by his death, burial, and resurrection, he settled the sin question to God's satisfaction. It is the infinite value of his sacrifice on Calvary that provides a righteous basis on which God can adopt us as sons, and it is all according to the good pleasure of his will. This is the sovereign motivation, he says, behind our predestination. It answers the question, why did he do it? Simply because it was good, his good pleasure. He could not be satisfied until he had surrounded himself with sons conformed to the image of his only begotten son with him and like him forever. And I just love that. He could not be satisfied until he had surrounded himself with sons. Why did he want to adopt us? Well, him adopting us was according to the good pleasure of his will. It brought the Father pleasure. It delighted his heart to bring us into his family, and he did it Willingly, no one had to twist the father's arm. Can't you just make them sons? Can't you make them daughters? Can't you adopt them? And he's like, fine, I'll do it. You know, as a parent, sometimes your, your willingness is a, like you need a little bit of, right? That's like the 10th time they've asked you about something. Maybe if you're a grandparent, that. Okay, as your grandparent, you just give in the first time. Let's not even, I'm going the wrong direction with that one. You guys are terrible. No, I'm just kidding. You're terribly good. God, the Father didn't need, he didn't need to be kind of like worked on, buttered up, his arm twisted, so to speak. He did it willingly because it pleased him to do it. 
learning all this, it's no surprise that Paul is going to follow this up by saying in the next verse, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Praising God the Father for his glorious grace because the truths of these blessings make me want to do the same thing. God, you want me? God, you wanted to adopt me? You wanted me as a son? Before, before I could ever even do anything, and even if I had, God, if you had chosen me after the foundation of the world, God, do you, I don't think you would have chosen me. You would have chosen us. God, before everything, seeing everything in advance, you still, in your grace, in your sovereign will and, and mercy, you said, I want him. I want her. Man, it's powerful. It should cause us to do the same thing that it's caused Paul to do, which is just to worship our God. This leads us into verse 6. He says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Paul began this section in verse 3 by praising God, beginning by saying God was blessed, he was worthy of praise, as he thought about all the spiritual blessings that we've been given in the heavenly places in Christ. But now, after having listed some of the ways that we've been blessed by God the Father, that he's chosen us, that he's adopted us, Paul bursts forth in worship again when he exclaims to the praise of the glory of his grace. And and just a, a heads up here, that phrase, to the praise of his glory, is a phrase that Paul is going to use to end each section after listing some of the blessings we've received from each person of the triune Godhead. We see this phrase here in verse 6 when talking about the Father. We're going to see this phrase again in verse 12 when he talks about the Son. And then again in verse 14 when talking about the Holy Spirit. I love Paul's response here to these deep and hard to understand doctrines he's already listed as blessings from the Father. Just joyously praising God for his glorious grace. God's election, his predestination, his adopting us didn't cause Paul to puff up with spiritual pride. No, it caused Paul to be humbled as he noted that these things are all a result of God's glorious grace, his unmerited favor toward you and me. And then Paul lists a final blessing here that we received from God the Father before turning his attention in verse 7 to the blessings that we receive from God the Son, that the Father, he says, has made us accepted in the Beloved. In the Greek, that phrase, made accepted, means to bestow grace, to be highly favored. In fact, when when Mary, Jesus' mother, is spoken of in Luke's gospel, in I think Luke chapter 1, 
I think Elizabeth says highly favored. You've been highly favored by the Lord. It's the same word. God has bestowed favor upon us in the beloved, which that word beloved is a form of that Greek word agape, but it speaks of the state of being loved with the agape love of God. And some commentators also see a connection here with the following verses where Paul focuses on God the Son and see this being accepted in the beloved as a reference to the Father accepting us because of the work of Christ toward us and in us. I like what Bible commentator Henry Ironside, what a great last name, right? Ironside. Guy's tough as nails. Anyways, Henry Ironside said this about this. He said, Observe that we have been made accepted in the beloved. The saved sinner does not stand before God in any righteousness of his own, nor does he plead any merit of his own before the divine throne. Not merely forgiven, not merely justified, not merely washed from his sins or cleansed from his defilement, he is received in loving kindness to the very heart of God, according to the Father's estimate of his own beloved Son. He went on to say, our Lord saw us in our great need. He paid for us, and having settled the debt, he has now brought us into the royal family, washed us from every stain of sin, robed us in garments of glory and beauty, and given us a seat at the table of the king. He has taken us into favor in the beloved, so that the Father's thoughts of Christ are his thoughts of love for us. Who trust Christ. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means that we don't have to try to and that we can't ever earn God's acceptance. Instead, it's our spiritual position of being in Christ that causes the Father to make us accepted in his sight, causing the Father to love us just as he loves his son, Jesus, which is actually what Jesus prayed for in John 17, verse 23. Father, you would love them just as you have loved me. When the Father looks at you and he looks at me, just grab a hold of this for, for a second. You are just as accepted and loved by the Father as if the Father was looking at Jesus himself. You couldn't be any more loved. You couldn't have any greater acceptance in the eyes of the Father. And it has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything with what Jesus has done for us. So how does the Father see those of us who have been saved by the grace of the Son, Jesus Christ? Well, he sees us in Christ through the lens of what Jesus has done for us and in us. And, and, and we as saints have been given amazing and profound spiritual blessings from the Father that we've been chosen, we've been adopted, and we've been 
accepted. Guys, we are wanted. We are valued. We have a family. We are accepted. We are loved incredibly. We are blessed. These things we've looked at today as the worship team comes up are meant to and should not divide us. They're not meant to fill our heart. Uh, sorry, they're not meant. They're not meant to divide us. They are meant to fill our hearts with joy and rejoicing. They're not meant to be disbelieved or discarded because we just can't wrap our heads around them. They're meant to be received and stood upon in faith as we trust in and are confident in the infinite wisdom and ways of our God and the loving and gracious character and nature of our God. He is worthy of all praise. We're going to learn more from Paul's praise to God next week as we begin to see the blessings that we have from God the Son. But I, but I pray these truths of how the Father has blessed us, that he's, again, chosen us, he's adopted us, he's accepted us, would bring each of us encouragement, so much greater confidence in who our Father is, in what he's done for us and in us, and in who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ Jesus, and that these things would all stir us and embolden us to worship him even more. But maybe you haven't first responded to the Father's call upon your life, that he loves you, he wants to save you, wants to forgive and cleanse you, wants to bring you into his family, making you a son or daughter, make you accepted in his beloved son. If that is anybody this morning, you don't, if you don't know Jesus personally, know this morning that he loves you. He died on the cross for you. He was sent because of the Father's love for you and me. He died the death that we deserved. He took our penalty. He paid our debt in full so that you and I could have the opportunity to just put our faith in Jesus, to repent of our sin. And to surrender our lives to him. And so let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you. Father, that you have chosen us. That we're wanted by you. That even in that doctrine of election, God, we see your commitment to us. Your promise, Lord, that you will never, Lord, falter on. That, God, you've adopted us. Making us sons and daughters. Full-fledged sons and daughters. With all privileges and all responsibilities of sonship. Father, thank you that you have accepted us in the beloved. Lord, that our acceptance in your eyes has nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. 
Lord God, we're so thankful for you. We want to worship and praise you this morning. Lord, that these things in us, God, would encourage, would stir in us greater confidence in you. God, that we would recognize, Lord, our true spiritual identity in Christ. Chosen, adopted, accepted. God, we, would we walk, would we stand in those truths this morning? But Lord, if there's anybody here that hasn't first just opened their heart to you, they've never received your salvation, would you even now, Lord, be softening their heart, God? Would you be drawing them to yourself, God, that they would see their need for you, Lord, that they'd humble themselves and repent, put their faith in Jesus? Is that anybody here this morning? Would you raise your hand so I can pray for you if that's you? There you go, that's me. I, I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to have my debt paid in full. I want to become a child of God. To know that these things are true for me. Maybe even someone online or later on watching or listening, that's, if that's you, that you would just open your heart to the Lord. That you would just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. I confess, Jesus, that you're my Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. Would you make me a child of God? Would you make me a new creation in Christ Jesus? Would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? And God, would you transform me by the sanctifying work of your Spirit? God, make me more like Jesus. Help me to walk in your ways, Lord God, to follow you, to love you, to worship you, all the days of my life. Jesus, I surrender my life to you today. Be my Savior, be my Lord, be my God. I just encourage you, if you've done that, that you can have the confidence of Scripture that you are saved. And Lord, as we respond to your word now, as we sing these songs, as we take the communion elements, as we have opportunity to be prayed for in the corner of the room. Lord, continue, Lord, to move by your spirit in this place and in our hearts. Father, we thank you, we love you, we worship you, we praise you because you are worthy of all praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.